one of the things that I pride myself on is that for the last 15 years, I was a student pastor uh, before we planted Hill City. Now, one of the things that come with being a student pastor is you're known as the game guy. And so anywhere you go, anytime someone wants to play a game, they look at you and say, well, what are we going to do? Uh, and uh, and that, that is a blessing and a curse at times. Um, but one of the things that is fun now that I have nieces and nephews is I'm often kind of the fun uncle, all right? Uh, the funkle, if you will. And so I, I love to play games with my nieces and nephews. In fact, over Christmas time, we were in this spot where we went to visit them and we were in line such a long line. And, uh, and I said, guys, you want to know what? Let's play Simon Says. And so we started doing Simon Says. I'm pretty good at Simon Says. Not, not playing Simon Says, but calling out Simon Says. And so, you know, I do like the age old, all right, if you guys, you guys want to play Simon Says, they're like, yeah, okay, all right, good. All right, everyone come forward to me and get in a line. And they'd all get in a line and be like, you're all out because I never said Simon Says, you know, like that whole kind of thing, right? And so like, I, I love doing that kind of stuff. And after a while though, after about three rounds, uh, none of my nieces and nephews wanted to play because I kept getting them out within like one question. Uh, and it was one of those things where like one of them wanted to play, my one niece who is very competitive, uh, she did not want me to win any longer and so she kept fighting. But the rest of them, they all just started kind of walking around doing their own thing. And I tell you that story because I think in many ways, that's how a lot of people are in the church today. If you think about it, a lot of people are in the game, but very few are actually paying attention to what's going on. You could even make the argument that very few are actually playing by the rules, if you will. What, and what do I mean by that? Ultimately, what I mean by that is a lot of people talk about how they follow Jesus, but very few people actually follow Jesus. And they wonder why they don't experience Jesus like they read about in Scripture. They read this and they say, oh, well, if I was just one of the disciples, it'd be easy to follow Jesus today. If I was able to see Jesus heal like the disciples saw, it'd be easy. Oh, if I could hear God talk, talk to me the way that Moses heard God talk to him, well, it'd be easy to follow. And the interesting thing is they sit back and they just read scripture and they say there's something more there. And so they just kind of disconnect. And they think, oh, there must, I must be missing something. And what we want to be all about here at Hill City is helping people follow Jesus. But it begs the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, Jesus was a lot of things, and we know him best as the Son of God. But he was also the Messiah, or the Christ, which is a word meaning the long-awaited king of Israel and ultimately the world. And this is who uh, Jesus uh, was, but oftentimes in Jesus' day, people saw him not as the Messiah, but as a rabbi. And I think it's helpful to think of Jesus in these terms. A rabbi is a Hebrew word that means teacher. So Jesus was a Hebrew teacher. And rabbis would travel from town to town and with, their, with their yokes, or what was known as their teachings, and what they would do was they would teach the Torah. They would read the Torah, or what we would call the Bible, the Old Testament. And their, their yoke was kind of their way of reading through the Torah and, and coming to an implication or an application on that Torah. That's who Jesus was. Of the 90 or so times that people talked to Jesus in the Gospels, nearly 60 of those times, he's referred to as rabbi. 
And this might not seem like a big deal, but I believe it has incredibly big and significant implications for what it means to follow Jesus. Let's read just a few stories about Jesus the rabbi and see what it means for you and I as we follow Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, because we can't turn to them on the screen here, uh, you can go to Mark chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 20. Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Here's what it says. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and with the hired men and followed him. Turn your, turn your page one over to the right, and we're going to go to Mark chapter 2, looking at verses 13 through 14. Verse 13 says, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake and a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Once again, turn to the page to the right, go to Mark chapter three. We're gonna be looking at verses 13 through 19. Here's what it says. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name uh, Burgenes, which means son of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Turn one more time, just a few more pages over to Mark chapter eight. We're gonna be looking at verses 34 through 37. Here's what it says. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Do you see a pattern that begins to come as we read these four passages? A pattern that stands out to me is that when Jesus asks people to follow him, ultimately what he is not doing is saying, just believe a right set of rules so that you can go to heaven one day. That is not what he is asking them to do. Rather, the call of Jesus was clear. The call of Jesus was to come and follow me or come and be my disciple. The word disciple in Hebrew is this word talmudin, which means disciple or follower, but it also means student or apprentice. I think sometimes when we hear the word follower, we go to our modern context of social media. Well, I am a follower of Jesus as long as I follow him on Instagram. Or, you know, as long as I kind of like a few of his verses and like his posts, and I'm good. But the reality is, is I follow a lot of people on Instagram that I've never met before and I don't know anything about their lives, right? The same is true of many of us on social media. Or we hear the word student and we think, oh, I can just take notes and I can be an, become an expert on the topic of Jesus, but that's not what he is inviting us 
too. I think a lot of times that's what we think. If I can just know more about Jesus, then that is the same as knowing Jesus. But what ultimately Jesus is inviting his disciples to do is to get to know him, to follow him. I actually think apprentice might be the best description for the word disciple. To follow a rabbi meant that you apprenticed under that rabbi. And I think it's helpful for us to understand that discipleship did not begin with Jesus because we see lots of people, lots of rabbis who had disciples after Jesus. In fact, in the first century, discipleship was kind of the apex of the Jewish education system. It didn't get any higher than that. In fact, there were three levels to the Jewish education system. The first level was something called Bet Sefer, which is known as the house of the book. And in Bet Sefer, it was equivalent to uh, grade school today, like an elementary school today. This is where uh, people, students would learn how to read, how to write, do basic math, but they would all learn it from the Torah, from their scriptures. And in fact, a lot of what they would do is they would study and they would memorize the first five books of their Old Testament, known as the Torah. And then what would happen is the best of the best would then be invited to go to uh, what is known as Bet Talmud, which is the house of learning. This is where the house was built. Uh, or there was a house built off the side of a synagogue, and this is where many of them would go and sit with a rabbi, and he would grill you with different questions about the law. And the goal was that you would kind of rise through the ranks of the different disciples of that rabbi. And eventually one day what he would do is he would turn to you and say, come and follow me. And if that happened to you, then ultimately you would go on to the final stage, which was for the best of the best of the best, which was a Talmudin. This was an apprentice to the rabbi. And this is where they would come. And they would learn all the things that a rabbi would do, ultimately with the hope and the desire that one day they would be released to go and make disciples of their own. So you had these three levels. You had Bet Sefer, which is a house of learning. That's where most people went, but only a few made it through. Most people afterwards, if you were a woman, you went and you got married and started having kids. If you were a man, you would go and learn the family trade with your dad. Then you had the second stage, Bet Talmud, which is a house of learning where you would go and you would learn even more and memorize most of the Old Testament. And then you had a Talmudin. And if this happened to you, then ultimately, as a Talmudine, you had to build your life around three goals. Three goals. The first goal was to be with your rabbi. Be with your rabbi. This is why when Jesus calls the disciples, it's so significant. In Mark chapter 3, we read this. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. There's significance to that. These disciples, they understood that a rabbi was inviting them to come and follow him. That's why they left everything so quickly because that was known as the apex. The best of the best of the best were called to follow a rabbi. And so they dropped their nets to follow him around every single day and do whatever he did. There was even a well-known Hebrew blessing that said, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And that was a blessing, not a curse, all right? And the idea behind it was that you followed so closely to your rabbi that when his sandals would walk, he would fling up dust onto you. That was a blessing that you'd be covered in the dust of your rabbi. 
So that was the first goal, to be with your rabbi. The second goal was to become like your rabbi. Remember what what Jesus said to Peter in Mark chapter 1. Come follow me, he said, and I will send you out to fish for people. A lot of times we think that that's kind of a nice pun, a play on words for what Jesus was saying. Oh, you're a fisherman, I'll teach you how to fish for people. What it actually was, it was a Hebrew idiom. And the idea behind this was for a teacher to be a fisher of men meant that he would go and he would capture the minds and the imaginations of the people who were hearing him teach. So what Jesus was inviting Peter to do was to become a great teacher just like he was. In our, in our world that, that says, hey, be true to yourself. You are unique. You're a unique little flower, right? That's the goal, to have autonomy, to be your own person. That was not the goal in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, the goal was to be the exact replica of your rabbi. His mannerisms, his tone of voice, his dress, all those things you would take on as a disciple. This was the heart and soul of apprenticeship to a rabbi. And ultimately, the third goal then began to be to do what he did. I think of what Jesus said in Mark chapter 3 when it says that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. When you read through the Gospels that we, that we have, you see Jesus teaching. And many times when he taught, people asked, who gives this man such authority? Right? So he wanted to pass on the authority to his disciples. And then he went around and he did the miraculous. One, many of those was driving out demons. So in many ways, what Jesus was doing is he was gathering the disciples to ultimately send them out to go and do the very things that he did. At some point, he said that they were ready to go and to step up. And that was the whole point of apprenticeship. The whole point was to become a rabbi yourself. Not just to know a lot about rabbis, but actually become a rabbi yourself. And the hope is that after a few years, your rabbi would turn to you and say, go and make disciples of your own now. So they would go and they would travel around with their yoke and they would gather and capture people's minds and then make disciples of their own. But again, what does this mean for us in our 21st century context in Metro Detroit? To follow Jesus means that you apprentice under Jesus. And again, what does that mean? It means that we order our lives around these same three goals. We order our lives around the same three goals that these disciples of a rabbi did. So our, the aim of our life is to, one, be with Jesus. Be with Jesus. This is the first and most important goal. So oftentimes when people start following Jesus, what they do is they jump to right to, all right, what do I need to do? All right, I need to curse less, I need to give, I need to come to church, I need to do all these things. And ultimately what Jesus is inviting you to do is, hey, don't focus on the doing stuff, just focus on being with me. Spend time with me. This is the goal, to spend every moment with our rabbi. But how do I do this? Because the the natural, obvious realization is that Jesus is not here. And we're going to talk about this in the coming months as we dive into a few series that are coming up. But however, the short version, version is this. 
It is through a relationship with the spirit of Jesus that we are able to be with Jesus. And this means that the first and primary goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is learning to live in a constant state of awareness and connection to the spirit of God. It's known as practicing the presence of God. And so what are you doing? You are in line dropping off your kids at school, but you are in the presence of God. You are doing dishes after dinner and you are in the presence of God. You are struggling because your boss just said this or that to you and you are practicing the presence of God. Everywhere you go, you are living and becoming in a constant state of connection and awareness of the spirit of God in your life. This is the goal and foundation in life and the life of the kingdom of God. And if you are new to following Jesus and you are wondering where to start, this is where to start. Just start trying to live aware of and in a constant state of connection to the Spirit of God. That's where we start. Carve out time in the morning, at night, or during a few short spurts throughout your day to be with the Holy Spirit. I think of my wife, right? We, we've been married for a long time. We've been together for even longer, uh, dating and, and knowing each other. And oftentimes throughout my day, I will text her. I will give her a call. I will check in, see how her day is going, just to, just to know what's going on with her. We talk in the morning. We talk in the evening, right? This is the idea. Our relationship would not go well if I talked to her once in a while. Right? If like on a Wednesday, I said, hey, I got five minutes to give you. Uh, we'll connect real quick and check in and just make sure we're good, okay? Like that's not good. Or hey, once a, once a week on Sunday mornings, I'll give you an hour, but the rest of the week, I gotta, I, I'm busy. I got stuff to do, right? My relationship would not be going well with my wife, but that's how we treat church. That's how we treat our faith and relationship with Jesus. This makes me think of what Jesus says in John 15. When he's describing this whole idea of be with Jesus as a goal for our life, Jesus, he doesn't use these same words, but he uses similar words. In John 15, look at what he says. He says in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Then he says, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Then he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciple. So what Jesus likens it to is a branch abiding in the vine. He says, the aim of your life to show that you are a disciple, a follower of me, is to bear fruit. Well, how do we bear fruit? He says, remain in me. Stay connected to me. In other words, be with me. I think of what Dallas Willard said in his great book, uh, The Great Omission. Here's what he says is the aim and the most basic thing that we can do as followers of Jesus. Here's what he says. He says the first and most basic thing that we can do and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. 
but these are habits. They are not the law of gravity, and they can be broken, and a new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. And if God is the great longing of our souls, then he will become the pole star for our inward beings. Do you get what Willard is saying? His point is this, that living in a constant state of awareness and connection to God takes practice. You're sitting back and going, yeah, I I don't know how to do that. That's okay. Some of you, you have infants, and the goal of your life is just to try and get two minutes to yourself so that you can just go to the bathroom, right? Or like, or just go and take a shower without a kid banging on the door, or to just take a breath, right? But it's in the midst of that that we practice what does it look like to be in his presence. Some of you, you are in a high stress environment for your job. Some of you, you literally have life and death hanging in the balance as you do your job. And you sit back and you go, I don't know how to do this. It's those moments where we take a breath and we breathe in the presence of God and just say, Father, I'm here attentive to who you are and what you are doing in my life. I have this little saying that I tell my kids. I kind of view it as a blessing before school every morning. We sit in the car as we're in line for drop-off, and I just say, all right, kids, repeat after me. I don't have to hurry. I say, I don't have to hurry. I say, I don't have to worry. I don't have to worry. When I walk in the love, when I walk in the love, I'm my Father above. I'm my Father above. It's just this little blessing that I want them to understand and begin to hold on, that if they can walk in the love of God throughout their day, they don't have to worry about who likes them or who they are being coming or what they're trying to be. They don't have to worry or hurry about any of these things. They can just be present with their Father in heaven. That is the goal and aim of our life. And this is where the spiritual disciplines or practices of Jesus are used. Things like silence and solitude, prayer and fasting, scripture, Sabbath, these things ultimately help us carve out time in our lives to be with Jesus. And these are time-tested practices that allow us to remain in the vine and to present ourselves before God throughout our days to take a moment to slow down, to stop, and to practice the presence of God. This is where it's at. If you've been following Jesus and this is new to you, can I tell you, you will find great joy in slowing down to be with Jesus. The best part of following Jesus is Jesus. It's not the stuff that you get from following him. It's Jesus himself. And this is the first goal of following him. But the second goal is to become like Jesus. After you spend time abiding in the vine, your goal is to become like your rabbi. You want to become like Jesus. And in the past, this has been called sanctification. Other people call it more commonly spiritual formation. But I love when I read about formation, there's this great uh, book uh, called Invitation to a Journey. And in this book, Robert Mulholland, he defines spiritual formation as this. He says, spiritual formation is the process of being formed into the image of Jesus for the sake of others. So it is a process, it is a journey, it will take time, and you will become more like Jesus as you spend more time with Jesus, but it's not just for yourself, it's actually for the world around you 
as well. The reality is that we are all disciples of someone or something. We are all being formed into the image of something. The question is not, are you being formed? The question is, who or what are you being formed into? One thing that my wife and I will do every year, typically around the new year, is we try and track the trajectory of our lives. So we ask ourselves, who are we becoming 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now? We actually call it, what is our rocking chair moment going to look like? When we're in our 70s and we're on in our rocking chair, wherever we are at, what are the things in our lives that we will be proud of? What are the things in our lives that we will regret? And what are the things that we need to change now so we can avoid some of those things in our rocking chair moments? I don't know if you've ever done that before, but I would challenge you, if you haven't, to do that as homework this week. Track the trajectory of your life. Some of you, what is it going to look like for you in your 20s or your 30s? your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, wherever you are at in the journey of life, what is it going to look like for you? Track that trajectory. Who are you becoming? I don't know about you, but I want to become someone who looks and thinks like Jesus from the inside out. I want to look like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And I don't want my, I don't only want behavior modification. I want heart transformation to be who I am and what I am becoming. I want to be someone for whom it is easier to love our enemies instead of hate them. I want to be someone in whom it's easier to trust God because he is my father than it is to stress about the things of my life. That's who I want to become. But I also recognize that this takes time. It's not going to happen overnight. It will happen as we partner with God in our community to become who God has created us to be. And we will talk about this in the coming months, in the coming series that we're going to be doing. In fact, in, over the summer, we're going to jump into the Sermon on the Mount so that we can actually understand what does life in the kingdom of God look like. But I believe that this has the ability to truly change your life, your marriage, your family, and ultimately your world. This is what happens when we begin to become like Jesus. And so as we spend time with Jesus and become like Jesus, ultimately we will be moved to do what Jesus did. This is the whole ultimate goal of discipleship. And like I said, people typically jump here first and they wonder, oh, why am I not happy in my faith? Well, it's because we've skipped over some of the first and most important steps of the process in being with Jesus and becoming like Jesus. But as we do those things, the goal is that we would ultimately do the very things that he did because this is the goal of discipleship, and, to, and it was to carry out their master's work. And this is unique with Jesus. Yes, he was a rabbi and teacher, just like other people were, but he was also the son of God. And so he not only taught, but he ushered in the kingdom of God with his life. And so our goal is not only to know about the Bible, but it's also to join with God and what he's doing and bringing the kingdom of heaven into the world. So our goal as a church is to live in such a way where, where we are ushering in the kingdom of God to Farmington Hills and Livonia and Redford and Southfield. That is our goal because we are doing the very things that Jesus himself did. But it begs the question, what did Jesus do? 
I mean, when you read through the Gospels, we see Jesus do a lot of things. And this is not an exhaustive list, but here's a list of things that Jesus did. He preached the Gospel. He taught the way of the kingdom of God. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He ate and drank with people who are far from God. He participated in justice. He was a peacemaker. He prophesied. He prayed. He stood up against religious and political corruption. These are the things that Jesus did in his life. And if you are an apprentice of Jesus, then that means that ultimately we want to do these things as well. I remember when I was growing up, my cousin, he was a plumber apprentice. So he went to trade school to be a plumber, and then after trade school, he became an apprentice to a plumber. And I can't remember how many hours it took. It was something like 3,000 hours. He needed 3,000 hours to no longer be viewed as an apprentice, but to actually become a master plumber. And the goal for my cousin was not that he would know a lot about plumbing, but that he would actually be able to go and plumb a house right? This, is, this was his aim and his chief goal. And so he would learn under his disciple or under the master plumber that he worked under and he would disciple under that master plumber and he would learn this is why you do this. This is why you do this. This is the, the pitch that the pipe needs to be on. This is where everything needs to drain. Here's how you adhere everything together so that there's no leaks or any of that, right? He learned how to do all of that and ultimately he became a master plumber who can go and bring on apprentices under him to teach them how to plumb a house. And in the same way, your goal as a disciple is not to know a lot about Jesus, but it is to be able to grow and mature into a place where you have the capacity to join Jesus' kingdom work in the Farmington Hills area. That is our aim goal. We believe that revival can come into this area, but it will begin with us living out this kind of life that Jesus modeled for us. So let's recap. The goal and aim of our lives as followers of Jesus is threefold. One, it's to be with Jesus. Two, it's to become like Jesus. And three, it's to do what Jesus did. You heard Adam mention that earlier today. That is our aim. That is the goal of who we are as a church. What we want to do here at Hill City is we want to come alongside of you and we want to help you in those areas. And so much of what we are building our lives around as a church revolve around being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. That is what we want your lives to be built around as well. And the thing about following Jesus in this way is that it does not work as a hobby. Again, I think what so often happens is we step into the game, but many of us are willing to stick with it and play the game by the rules. No, this is more than just a hobby. This is, uh, in fact, when it's a hobby, it's much, much harder, and it doesn't produce the kind of life that we think it will produce when we read through the scriptures. And this doesn't mean that you have to quit your job to become a pastor, but it does mean that you, when you, that you follow Jesus where you are and you make it the central point of your life to apprentice under Jesus. That is our aim for you. And this is the kind of life that you are invited into by Jesus himself. This is the kind of life that Jesus is calling you to. And this is the kind of life that we want to help you with as a church. So as we begin to close, I want us to look at Mark chapter 8 just one more time. And in Mark chapter 8, there's one verse particularly that I want us to just 
sit in. It's Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Here's what, here's what it says. It says, Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. <clears throat> As we close, there's just two things I want us to notice about this, this verse. One, Jesus invites us to be a disciple, not a Christian. Again, I think what we lose so often in our modern context is we associate coming to church on a Sunday morning with following Jesus. There were tons of people who followed Jesus, but he's inviting people to be a disciple. The word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament, but the word disciple is used 268 times, which is more than any other description of what it means to follow Jesus. And interestingly enough, family is the next most often used description to follow Jesus. Not Christian, but disciple and then family member. These are the pictures that Jesus is, is giving us on what it looks like to follow Jesus. So we follow Jesus as a disciple and a family of other disciples. That is what it looks like to follow Jesus. So being a disciple is the category on what it means to follow Jesus. So what is the difference between a Christian and a disciple? I believe that in our American Western context, what we see is that a Christian is someone who believes in the basic ideas of the religion of Christianity. You go to church once in a while and you're, in a, you're a semi-moral person. But being a Christian today is more about Jesus following you than you following Jesus. It sounds a little harsh, but I really believe it's true. I believe that's one of the reasons why people are not experiencing that life to the full that they read about in the scriptures when they read through the gospels. And this is a huge problem in the U.S. In fact, research is showing that 78% of people identify as Christians in the United States, but then independent researchers show that the number of people who are actually following Jesus is around 8%. The weird thing is that it is antithetical to Jesus and the disciples of the New Testament. That's, that's not what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's not what we read about in the scriptures. And again, what we see in Mark chapter 8 is he's inviting people to be his disciple. But there's two groups of people in this verse. There's the disciples, and then there's the crowds. And I believe what Jesus is doing is he's using this kind of literary tool to beg the question, which of the two groups are you in? Are you a person in the crowd who is following Jesus and looking to what Jesus is going to do in your life? Are you following Jesus to see the miracles that he will perform? Or are you one of the disciples who is committed and devoted to building your life around these three goals of being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what he did? I believe in many ways that's the same question that Jesus is asking us today. Which group are you in? Are you one of the disciples or are you a face in the crowd? Again, you can tell that I like Dallas Willard because he, he wrote this again in the book, The Great Omission. Here's what he says. He said, the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs is this. It's whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ. 
steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of heaven into every corner of human existence. In Willard's mind, the greatest need in our world today, the greatest need is that Christians would become disciples. That is our greatest need. And Jesus is looking for converts to not, he's not looking for converts to Christianity, just to believe a certain thing. No, he's looking for apprentices to the kingdom of God. So we know that, notice that. He's inviting people to be disciples, not Christians. The second thing I want us to, you to, us to notice is that the invitation is open to anybody. Look at what he says. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple. You don't need a degree in the Greek language to know what whoever means. It's whoever. It is open to anyone. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter the things that you've thought about God even on your way to church this morning. It doesn't matter the things that you've gone through or the things that have happened to you. This invitation is open to anybody. And remember, this is different than how they viewed discipleship in the ancient world. Because discipleship was only open to the best of the best of the best. But what Jesus is doing is he is saying, I'm not taking the best of the best of the best. I'm saying this invitation to discipleship is open to anyone. Anyone can come to me and find life and life to the full. So whoever means you, it means your coworker, it means your neighbor, it means your children. That is what Jesus is offering to all of us and what he's offering is unheard of. It would be like the best professor in the world offering a full ride scholarship to Harvard. All you had to do was message him. You don't need a high school diploma. You don't need any kind of criteria, no problem. All you had to do was message him and let him know that you are in and you show up day in and day out and you learn from the best. Jesus stands there and says, it doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you're smart enough. It doesn't matter if you have your act together. You are invited here and now to follow Jesus. The invitation is open to anyone. And this is the kind of life that Jesus called life and life to the full. I really believe that that is what people are longing for today. They are looking for fullness of life in all sorts of different avenues. And ultimately what our hearts will discover is that we will always be left longing for more when we look for the fullness of life in anything other than Jesus. You're not gonna find it in drinking. You're not gonna find it in dating. You're not gonna find it in success and wealth or any of those things. Even the simple pursuit of happiness will not bring those things around. I believe that the fullness of life is only found in our pursuit of Jesus and Jesus alone. This is the truth. And formation, it's not against trying. But that's what most people do. Really, if we want to be formed into the image of Jesus, we need to train to be that way. And Jesus understood this. Look at how he starts and ends the Sermon on the Mount, the kind of key description of what life as a follower of Jesus looks like. In Matthew 5, 19, he says, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly 
will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of God. Living a kingdom of life requires practice according to Jesus. And then he ends the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 with this. He says, therefore, anyone who heard, heard these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its, it had, it had its foundation built on the rock. <clears throat> Jesus is inviting you to practice to train this kind of life that invites us, that he invites us to experience. At Hill City, we're gonna be this kind of community. If you came here this morning wanting to learn more about this church, if you came here this morning because someone invited you, here's my, my invitation to you. We are gonna be a church. We are gonna be a community that practices following Jesus together. We are all in, on a journey. No one is gonna profess to have made it or to have figured it all out, myself included. We are all on this journey together and we are learning what it looks like to follow Jesus. People have asked me, what is Hill City all about? And I just say simply, following Jesus. That's it. We wanna invite people to follow Jesus. We wanna help Jesus follow, or help people follow Jesus. And then we wanna equip people to go out and invite others to do the same things. That's what we're about. It's that simple. But we're not gonna be able to do this on our own. It has to be done in, Hill, in community. And that's what Hill City is gonna be all about. We're gonna be a community of people seeking to grow in their apprenticeship to Jesus as we practice the presence of God together. That is what we're gonna be all about. And I wanna reiterate to all of you that all of you are invited into this, no matter where you are at in the journey. That's the beauty of this invitation that Jesus is giving to us. It is open to anyone. And I believe that if you are willing to live this way as a church, I believe the gates of hell will not be able to stand against what God is doing. And we will see nothing short of revival begin in this gym and begin to flow out to the areas and corners of our world that we live in. So friends, what does it look like to follow Jesus? It doesn't work as a hobby. To follow Jesus means that we build our lives around these three aims, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. That is what Jesus invited the disciples to do. That's what we are inviting you to do. And we would consider it one of the great privileges and honor of our life as a new church to be able to walk alongside of you in this way, to help you do those very things and ultimately disciple under Jesus. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna end our time here this morning. We're just taking a moment and reflecting. Where are we at in our journey? I think so often what happens is we hear a message and we, we feel God's presence and then we go out and we don't change anything, right? Here's what we wanna do. Just evaluate. Where are we at in our discipleship to Jesus? Just silently right where you are. Ask the question, God, where am I at in my discipleship to you? Where do I need to go? Father, we come and we trust that you speak to your people in the same way that you spoke to them back how we read about in the scriptures. 
We thank you for your spirit's presence that is at work within us and who intercedes on our behalf. And we pray and we ask that right now your spirit would fall heavy on this place. Holy Spirit, that you would come and do a work that only you can do. That you would speak to us, that you would show us where we need to go and what true discipleship to you looks like. May we be a church that is known as followers of you, not just people who come to church on a Sunday. God, would we build our lives around these three goals? And Father, in the areas and in the ways that we have fallen short, God, show us. So through the work of your spirit, we may grow in our relationship with you. Lord, thank you for taking something that was reserved for a select few and opening it up to everyone. The only requirement is that we would simply say yes to you. That we would acknowledge who you are, Jesus, as the son of God. We acknowledge what you did in coming and taking away our sins and opening up a way for us to know you and experience life with you. Father, that we'd be able to respond in a posture of surrender and say, Lord, you can have all of who I am. Lord, help us to be followers. Help us to be disciples. Help us to be apprentices to who you are. And help us to experience the life that you've created us for. A life that is actually life and life to the full. Oh, Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for who you are. In these next few moments, just where you're at, spend time.